Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, we're joined by Sam White, the multi-award-winning CEO of Freedom Services, a UK-based group of companies, including Action 365, Puka Insure, and Freedom Brokers, and Stella Insurance in Australia. Sam, welcome to Global Law and Business. We'd love to hear a little bit more about your background. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so, oh God, where do I start? A lot. It's, it's, it sounds a little bit like the Star Wars intro, a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, I set my first company up when I was 24 um, from my sister's conservatory. Um, and, you know, I, I, at the time, I think I just wanted a bit more freedom, um, which is ironic because that is obviously the name of the company that um, I now run. And it's a group of motor-based businesses. So it's a, a motor claims um, TPA. So we handle uh, motor claims on behalf of insurers. Um, and I have a motor MGA of my own, which writes insurance business. Um, and I have a motor brokers, which uh, deals with the general public and sells policies directly to them. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I went over to Australia, absolutely loved it thought that it would be uh, a good place to start business up and so launched a a insurance for women so uh, a motor insurance product that's specifically designed around women and um, supports other female entrepreneurs in Australia so can you explain a little more about what action 365 is we'd love to hear what inspired you to start it and how it satisfies a need in in the insurance field yeah, so I mean that was my first business. So uh, you know, I, I started it up because after after leaving university, I got a job in a motor claims company, and I knew absolutely nothing about it. And you know, it's not. I actually did a psychology degree, so you know, setting up a claims TPA certainly wasn't high on the agenda in terms of <laughs> what I would want to be spending my time doing. But um, I got this job in this motor claims business, and it worked with um, motor insurance brokers. So you know car insurance comes up for renewal and you want to get a good price. And, you know, at that time, uh, most people were were buying insurance from their sort of local insurance broker. But that broker didn't want to handle the, the claims themselves. Um, and so they would outsource it to companies like this um, company that I worked with. And I just felt that, you know, the, the, the service that these brokers were looking for and the service that the ultimate client required um, wasn't necessarily being um, 
delivered in the way that I would would wish it to be delivered. So, you know, the uh, the initial idea for the business was was just to do it a bit better and to to kind of improve upon what was in the market um, as it stood. And then over a period of time, I started to realise there was a real disconnect between what insurance companies wanted from a claims handler, what brokers wanted um, from a claims provider, and actually ultimately what what the customer's needs were. And so I started to kind of integrate um integrate those those three things and that was where the, the 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 motivation to set the other business units up was because we we solved one problem from a claims perspective but until we had um ultimate control of the the whole uh supply chain we were hitting barriers in terms of things that we wish to do that that perhaps the the market wasn't as receptive to as as it, as it could be just now you mentioned that you identified a need for for insurance services that better cater to to women and and their uh, specific insurance needs. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? I mean, because for someone like myself, for example, who's who's not particularly well versed in, in, in the world of insurance, uh, at first glance, it is hard for me to see w- where there could be that gap. Um, so I'd like to hear a little bit more about some of the the deficits that a women encounter when they're dealing with, uh, let's say, the traditional insurance uh, sector and, and how that can be remedied. Sure. And, you know, it's some of the stuff is is more subtle than others. But I I kind of there's, there's a great book um, that I read a couple of years ago, um, Invisible Women, the, the Truth About Data Bias. I don't know if you've um, if you've seen it. It's it's a great book, but but it's it's written um, by a lady who's who's analyzed pretty much everything that we use in today's world um, and, and sort of dissected um, what, the, what, what those products do and who they do them for. And, and, and so she makes the observation, she makes lots of observations, but um, medical uh, science, for instance, the drugs that we use, the, the overwhelming majority of them have been tested on males. And as a result of that, some of the drugs that we give for um, things like heart disorders are really much less effective in women than they are in men, because obviously female biology is very different to male biology. It's tested on men. I mean, even down to um, the heart attack symptoms that, that hospitals look for are the symptoms that are prevalent in males and not females. And so, again, over 30% more women die from a heart um, incident than than men do because they, they don't get recognised when they get into the hospital um, as, as quickly as, as their male counterparts would do. And then when you apply that lens um, to, to motor, um, seat belts are designed for the male torso, so more, more women dying in, in car accidents than, than men do. And you go, well, surely that's not the, you know, that, that I get that, but that can't possibly be relevant to the product design. But, but actually it is because um, financial services is, is overwhelmingly um, run by and has been built by men, which is, you know, there's no, there's no I don't think there's a, a sort of deliberate um, bias here in that there's a group of, um, you know, dark, shadowy 
men in a corner deliberately designing products to to not delight women but obviously you do design things from your own perspective and so you know we looked at the policy wordings and you know stupid stuff like uh contents cover would cover you for things like golf clubs um there's obviously a lot more men that that uh, go golfing than women but things like um your uh, your your uh baby equipment or handbags i mean a lot of women have very expensive handbags that that they, they weren't generally covered in the in the underwriting document and then we we went out to the market we did a big research process we were lucky enough to do a media deal um with a large media company over in australia that 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 um runs extensive sort of research panels before um launching with a partner and and we really wanted to understand you know what women's perception was of insurance and look nobody really likes insurance it's a grudge purchase and it's generally you know it's not the sort of thing that you want to say that you do at parties it's not going to get anybody super excited to talk to you my uh you know my careers in insurance is is likely to send people running for the hills um but, but but women in particular kind of, they consider that insurance is, you know, it's a grudge purchase. It's this thing I've got to pay for. I don't really understand what I've got. The policy wording's really confusing and they're going to rip me off when I have a claim and, and try and not um, pay me out. And then, you know, the, the other horrendous thing in the insurance industry, which is being tackled at the moment in the UK, but hasn't yet been tackled in Australia is is dual pricing. So, so actually, insurance companies go out of their way to penalise customers that are loyal to them. The longer you stay with your insurer, the higher the price you pay. And as I say, we're, we're, we're tackling that with regulation in the UK, but they haven't started to tackle that in Australia. Now, um, what we found in our research is that loyalty was um, w- was far higher on the list of emotionally important things to women than it was to men you know men could kind of deal with that churn and were happy to go and look for the cheaper price um uh, on on renewal and uh, you know move insurers but actually women feel very aggrieved by the idea that they've given their their loyalty to a business and um that the business hasn't reciprocated that so you know we we um we, we just felt that there was a place to build something from a female perspective and that we, we do ensure men. So we're not, we're not saying um, this is only for women. And as, as I often like to say, you know, I love Chinese food, but I'm not Chinese. I, I don't think that, that men should have issue with the fact that the product in itself has been designed with a woman in mind. It doesn't mean that they won't enjoy it or they won't appreciate the features that are in there, just as I enjoy and appreciate a number of things that have been designed for men in my uh, everyday life. But we think that there is a very valid reason to step back and and start the design process from a, a female perspective. Sam, I just want to jump in. I know this is, I'm, I'm going into somewhat treacherous territory here. And, you know, we- <laughs> I will support you. I'll hold, you. I'll hold your hand. It will be fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the way you frame it. You know, you like Chinese food, you're not Chinese. And then and sort of alluding to why there might be some pushback from men who might say, well, why do you need special insurance you know why what's wrong with with just having insurance for everyone i think you did a great job of explaining why that is but it it struck me as i listened to your answer that 
at least here in the United States in this moment in our history, the greatest objections that might be raised would be concerning the fact that you're singling out women as a group and sort of attributing some general characteristics, physical uh, and otherwise. And I follow UK news to to some degree. I lived there for two years. And in fact, I I would much rather read British newspapers than American ones. So I can have some sense of, of what's going on. And while perhaps when it comes to certain issues surrounding gender, I think things are not quite as I don't know what the, what the correct word would be, but here in the U.S., we're, we're certainly in the midst of a, of a very intense national conversation. Let's put it that way about these topics. Yeah, yeah, we are we are in the U.K. as well, and and everybody's suitably terrified not to say the wrong thing, but equally, you know, feeling uninformed about what is the the right thing to say. So I I I, I do deeply understand the question. Um, I I guess. My point is that you're quite right. You know, women are, you know, as with all humans, uniquely individual. But there are general characteristics in in any group um, that 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 do prevail. And when you're building products, you you do target markets. You know that that is what marketing is about. And and actually, marketing has become more and more um, down to that individual level. I mean, I was, I was chatting to somebody the other day about programmatic radio, where they are able to issue the radio advert specifically to the individual and also time it so that, you know, if you're driving down a freeway, you will see the, the banner on the side of the road and the radio will, will pop up with the advert at the same time. And that will be designed around specific data that, that, that those organizations have about you as, as an individual to, to try and to best appeal to you. Um, but but there's, there is some sort of core work that, that needs to be done that can be easily forgotten in that a lot of the products at a core basis have not been designed with any other consideration other than a, a male perspective. So, you know, to even chip away at that, um, albeit I, you know, I, I, I take the point that, um, you know, not all women are, are, are mothers for sure, um, but there are certainly more women that would be driving around in a car that would have a, um, a requirement to ensure their handbag and their baby gear than, than they would to ensure their golf clubs. And I'm, I'm happy to, to, to kind of support that from a product design perspective. So let's turn back to the concept of the insurance industry. Can you tell us a little more about how the industry in the UK would differ from the US, the EU, or even Australia? Um, so I, I haven't done any business in Europe in, in I've, I've sort of had a little bit of a peek at the French and um, Spanish markets, but I, I certainly wouldn't consider myself in a strong enough position to articulate the markets. I did spend some time in the States. Um, so I lived in California for a couple of years. Where, where are you guys, by the way, geographically? I'm located in Salt Lake City, Utah. I'm in Florida at the moment, but I'm uh, officially working out of Seattle. 
So spread all, all across. I've been to, I think I've been to Utah. I'm sure I went skiing there once. But yeah, I, I just spent a couple of years in California. Um, the US market for motor um, is, is different to the UK. Um, one of the primary differences is that you, you have a limit of liability. So when you buy your insurance, you, you kind of pick what cover you've got. So you might say, um, I, I think, and this is my experience from a few years ago, but you would say I want $250,000 worth of cover for myself and I want $250,000 worth of cover for the third party. And you run the risk that if the claim exceeds that, then the third party could sue you personally. Whereas UK insurance is limitless liability. Um, and, and actually, we have, um, you know, some some probably um, the most expensive market in the world from an excess of loss perspective, because some of the claims, um, catastrophic claims are um, extremely large in the UK. Um, and Australia is different, again, that they sort of separate out the uh, personal injury element from the vehicle element. So, again, UK, it's it's one premium. It covers you for everything. In Australia, there's a state-backed scheme for personal injury, albeit the insurance industry supports it. Um, and then you buy your insurance for your car, which which makes the underwriting um, a lot easier to manage because, you know, if you decide that you're just launching a product as we did with Stella that just isn't a CTP scheme, it just supports the car, um, then, you know, it's easier to work out what your potential liability is going to be over a period of time. Um, UK becomes a lot more complicated because of the, the additional level of cover. Is that what you meant or were you talking more in terms of um, the, the sorts of products that you would get or the, the, the attitude of consumers? I'd like to hear more about those. The beauty of, of our podcast is that Fred and I are absolute generalists. And so even though you say, I don't know, and I don't really know the market in anywhere, that's what you know is far more than what we can even guess at. So we're happy to have you even speculate about what you, what you once read on the back of a cereal box about insurance compared to what we know. Oh, see, that's, that always puts me in a stronger position if I've got an <laughs> informed audience. How, however, some of the people listening may be far, far more informed <laughs> than, um, than I am. I mean, you know, motor insurance is um, it's quite a challenging market worldwide. Um, capacity is restricted. So, you know, what happens in insurance is insurance is effectively just capital. And it's where people are happy to put their capital to, to get a return. And, you know, everybody's chasing um, decent, what, what we would say, loss ratio results. Um, now, from my experience um, when I was in the States, it, probably loss ratios were easier to predict because your system uh, allows people to, well, allows, your system insists that insurers declare their rates at the beginning of the year and they're not allowed to change them. Um, in the UK, I can change my rates hourly, daily, minutely if I want to. And so the market is, is extremely reactive to market pricing. Um, and so if I'm on a price comparison site and I decide that I want to write more business than I'm currently writing, I have a choice that I can drop my rates for a period of time, drop my rates in certain segments, 
and to try and drive that volume. Um, whereas in in the states, you you can't do that. You 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 decide what your rates are, you declare them, and and you kind of stock with them. And the benefit from the American market, from a capital viewpoint, is that that gives consistency to your results. It's easier for you to predict where things are going to end up at the end of the day. Whereas in the UK, it's you know you're, when you're trying to track your ultimate loss ratios, it's it's very much a a moving target, and that can make um, some capital markets quite uncomfortable to um, to engage. Sam, just following up on this, um, I wonder if there's any relationship at all, and, and if there is a relationship, you know, whether it plays out or, or manifests itself in these differences that you're that you're talking about. It, well, here in the U.S., we we have incredible, especially by by European standards, right? We have these these incredible judgments that are that are handed out, um, especially in, in you know personal injury cases and and, and other. Know, similar cases. I don't know if perhaps things have changed since uh, since I was in law school a long time ago, but but certainly when I was in law school, right, that was one of the things that, that we we studied the fact that you'd be looking at a court in in, in the UK, for example, you'd be looking at much uh, lower awards than in the US. I imagine that there's been a, a trend of some sort away from that, but perhaps there's still a, a big gulf between. The, the kind of awards that are that are handed down by British courts and, and, and Australia for that for that matter. So I, I just wonder if if there is a, a connection to how the insurance between that um, let's say judicial reality and the way that the insurance industry operates in, in each jurisdiction. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and yeah, I looked at the claims market in the states as well. I mean, we, we you're right, we don't have punitive damages in the UK, which seems to be the the sort of big difference. But what I found interesting is b- because of this cover issue um, in the states, if, if I'm a personal injury lawyer and Joe smashes into Mary, um, and Mary's really badly injured as a result of the accident. But Joe's cover is only up to 125,000, and Joe's got no assets. Then what happens from what I could see, and I, I, again, not my area of expertise, but what I saw was that that nobody really wants that case because the the, the money ultimately you can you know a court can decide that they're going to award a certain amount of damages, but if there's nowhere to recover those damages from then what's the point? And so those cases wouldn't get picked up. So so what I found in the legal market over there was, you know, the search for the perfect claim. And the perfect claim required either a third party that was had was very asset rich. Um and again I saw some, you know, mitigative measures from the very wealthy. I mean, I I lived in Beverly Hills for a period of time and every single person had um, their own personal trust that they kind of locked the assets into so that if there was a legal case, um, whether it be a car accident or anything else, they, they were kind of protected from that. Now, 
in the UK, because of the way that insurance works, that could never happen um, because all insurance policy has unlimited liability for third party damages. So if Joe smashes into Mary in the UK and, and causes that level of, of, of damage, if he's insured, that insurer will pay the full amount. And actually, some of the awards are, um, you know, it's it's not um, out of the realms for significant millions of pounds worth of damages in serious injury cases to be um, to be awarded. And and we have a you know a, quite a robust um, additional insurance market on top of the primary cover, the excess of loss market for any claims that um that are going to come in for over a million pounds is 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 what's used to 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 cover that off now um australia's um a bit of a a weird hybrid of the two in that for 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 smaller claims in some of the states and the, the different states have different rules around this but in queensland for instance um whiplash claims you you can actually be awarded quite a significant amount in comparison to both the US and the UK. You know, you're talking fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Um, but the number of people that will put a claim in in Australia is tiny in comparison to the UK and the US. They're they're very um, claims adverse, and so that sort of compensation culture that I think both the UK and the US suffers from isn't really prevalent currently in Australia. Whether that will change in the future, I don't know. But you've got this this sort of two-tiered system where um, people buy their CTP separate from, from their, their primary policy. So you've got different insurers handling um, that. And there's there's limits on uh, how profitable a CTP insurer is allowed to be, and the government controls that and, and manages that through regulation. Sam, I've never been to Australia, but from what I've been able to pick up by talking to Australians and, and you know, just, just watching things on, uh, on the news and YouTube, I think uh, I'll leave out the weird part, but um, <laughs> but I guess one could one could say that a hybrid of the UK and the US might actually begin to, to capture what what the place is like. So, taking off from from there, I was uh, hoping you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to do business there and what differences you've seen between Australia and the UK and the US, given the fact that you lived in California, moving you know, beyond the realm of insurance, right? Just just more generally, I'd love to hear more about what differentiates the Australian business culture from that in other places. I love the Aussies. Um, I love the country. I, I kind of fell in love with it the, the minute I went over there. They've, they've got a great uh, work-life balance. Um, you know, I think they had a reputation for a period of time of, of being lazy, but I, I don't find that at all. I find them very efficient. But they, you know, they value their family. They value their their um, free time, and and you will not catch an Aussie in the office past five o'clock on a Friday. They're, you know, they're off down the beach, they're surfing, they're barbecuing, and um, to my mind, they, you know, they know what's important in life. But when they're working, they're working. Um, I find them to be very uh, open and collaborative. You know. They're, they're, my experience with them has been absolutely fantastic. If 
if they don't want to do something, they tell you um, very quickly and very directly. So, you know, I always say um, I'm from the north of England um, and and we sometimes get frustrated with the southerners because we feel that they don't always tell us uh, the, the truth of how they're feeling. They dress it up too much and northerners tend to be a bit more direct. And I find that the Aussies are exactly the same. You know, they'll, they'll call a spade a spade. They'll get straight into it. My experience in America from a business viewpoint wasn't great, to be honest. And, you know, I, I, I'm also very aware of the subjectivity of a certain time or place or situation. Um, I also, I was in California and California may have a unique um, way of things, but I, I found um, uh, the, the the American business people that I dealt with um, to be quite brutal in their approach to business. There was the, culturally, there's this sort of attitude that anything goes in the name of business and it's all, you know, all's fair in, in love, war and business um, from, from a US perspective. But I found that quite difficult to navigate when actually you were trying to create win-win situations. So I found scenarios where deals would, would get killed on the vine not because they weren't beneficial to both parties, but because of this almost win-lose psychology that, you know, I have to lose in order for you to win. And therefore, all um, benefits on the other side of the coin would have to be removed. And it, this was this was just my experience. And as I say, I get that it's um, it was a, a, a snapshot of time and in a particular area. But I, I, I've... I find Australia um, and have found Australia uh, a much more um, fertile ground to, to do business and to, to, to create opportunities, even more so than the, the, the UK. You know, um, we, we, we do sometimes suffer, I think, in, in the UK from uh, just how competitive the market is and overcrowded and the, the sort of dynamics that that can create. That's a fascinating insight. And, and I mean, there are aspects of, of that that we can pick up on, but of course, it's not the same to hear an actual perspective, right? As so, someone who, who has a more t- detached perspective. I lived in, in China for, for more than 10 years. And when I first went to China, I was, I was a public servant. I had never worked in the private sector and, and ended up making that transition in Asia. And I remember um, in, the, in the early days of, 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 of my time as a private sector employee, being somewhat shocked right, by, by what I perceived to be these, these very cutthroat tactics that the Chinese and others would, would exhibit. And then to be fair, there's a lot of that. I think there were times when, at least initially, when I would romanticize you know, the way things are, are done here in the U.S. And then over time, I, I had enough experiences that made me realize, well, things can, as you said, I mean, things can be quite brutal here. And without wanting to get too political, my wife is a newcomer to the United States. She's, she's sort of figuring out, you know, how things work. And every once in a while, she'll ask me a question and she's simply trying to understand how are things done. And as I explain, you know, she'll have some sort of follow up. And, and, you know, very often the way these conversations go is like, well, how does this work? 
for example, when it comes to health insurance, like, well, what happens if, if you don't have a good job? Uh, and, and, I, and I find myself, as I respond to that, thinking, yeah, that's, it's terrible. It's one thing when you're used to, to certain things and, 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 and you just accept them as normal, but when you have to sometimes verbalize the way things are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much money you're making, you're, you'll get to enjoy that for at most a few decades if you're lucky, right? And in the name of that, right, the, the incredible hardships that are imposed on others, and, and this is not to say that, well, the U.S. is just terrible and nothing bad happens elsewhere, but I do think that many Americans have something of a blind spot when it comes to to some of what happens here. And, and, and I love the way you put it. And I think it's, it's, it's a, it's great insight. Win is not good enough. It has to be win lose. I think there's, there's a lot there and I'm sure some might take issue with that, but I find that to be very insightful. You know, all countries have their own individual challenges, don't they? I mean, you know, and and also there's the perspective with which we see things based on our own level of experience. And also, you know, when you're coming into a new area, I think was it Winston Churchill that said separated by a common language. And I, I really, when I got there, I didn't, I didn't quite get it until I'd lived there for about a year. And I realized that just because you speak the same language doesn't mean you understand each other. And I realized that some of the things that I would just assume were a given, um, I was completely missing the mark in terms of um, what the interpretation on the other side was. And, and and that was where, you know, I recognized that, that probably, you know, uh, as somebody in England, um, I am more European then I have synergies potentially um, with the States. And I'd, I'd always grown up believing, you know, we, we buy into the American dream as well. We buy into, I had this idea that, you know, all entrepreneurs were embraced in America because America had this, you know, view that anybody could be successful and everybody deserved a chance. And, and it, it probably did, pop my um, bubble somewhat um, when I when I got there because of this challenge. And I think, you know, if you live in a very um, individualistic society, and of course, you know, America is probably the, 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 the strongest example of that. And certainly we have a, a lot of it in the UK as well, but it's, it, it, it's extremely strong in, in the US. Then it, then are you going to be that excited about somebody else bowling up and, and potentially taking some of these resources that you think are scarce, particularly somebody that, that isn't from, uh, isn't homegrown, is from, you know, outside of the country. And I, I, uh, I, I, I did, I, I, you know, I, I learned a lot and there was, there was much, much lessons learned and probably more that could be learned in the future. But I do, um, I do find the psychology of business and then thrown into the mix, the, the potential cultural differences, um, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, I, I, I'm myself have, um, have, have had sort of varying success in different areas and took different experience of, of what that feels like. Sam, it's been a lot of fun to have you on the podcast with us today. We are nearing the end of our time and we always love to 
end with recommendations from you, from Fred and me. I know earlier you'd mentioned uh, the book Invisible Women, The Truth About Data Bias. I didn't know if that was going to be one of your recommendations, but I wanted to put it here so that uh, we can include that recommendation on our on our blog when we post this episode, but also do you have any other recommendations for us? And feel free to elaborate on Invisible Women as well. I know you mentioned a little bit before, but do you have any other recommendations for us? Mark Manson, Everything is Fucked, a book about hope, is um, one of the best books that I have ever read in my entire life. And if you're um, you know, curious about how the world works and curious about a slightly different perspective about those things, then I think that one's um, a real eye-opener. And then the book that I tell everybody to read, um, and I should actually get shares in this now, I, he, he really should, um, should, should support me in my lifestyle for the amount of times that I've recommended it, but The, the Chimp Paradox um, is an absolutely incredible book about how the brain works and um, the uh, it, it just articulates in layman's terms exactly why we do all of the stupid stuff that we, uh, we, we do in life. Excellent. Thank you for those. Fred, what do you have for us? So I tried to check whether I had recommended this before, the actual publication. So it seems like I have not. Just to play it safe, I'm going to assume that I have recommended this newsletter really, and, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and recommend an actual article, right? It's just in case, you know, so it's in the interest of avoiding uh, duplication. But basically, Politico puts out this newsletter on Canadian politics called Corridors. And I find it very interesting. I probably find Canadian politics more interesting than the average American. But if you find yourself on that camp where you feel like, well, yeah, you're right. I don't find it interesting. Well, I would suggest that this is a great way of piquing your interest in in Canadian politics. The the, the newsletter does a a great job of just explaining things and then making them interesting and and, and having them come to to life. So uh, the most uh, recent installment of Quarters is titled "Why an Election Is Definitely Probably in the Offing," which, as you might have guessed, talks about why we might be seeing uh, a, a Canadian elections in, in, in September, that's where the smart money seems to be. Just from the get-go, right, I think for, for a lot of Americans, the fact that we don't know when elections are going to take place, that in itself is, is something a little, a little surprising or shocking. And this is a good way of delving into that. Like, well, what, why is it different? In addition to, to the very Good job that that, the, that this article does explaining why we might see elections in September. What are the factors that go into that? There's also um, quite a bit of, of um, content regarding Canada's new Governor General Mary Simon, who is the first uh, Indigenous person to hold that that post. So I found I found that content to be very interesting as well. So I would suggest subscribing to uh, Corridors and. If you don't want to do that, at least read this latest uh, edition, uh, which came out today. And again, uh, why an election is definitely probably in the offing by Nick Taylor Vasey. And Jonathan, what, what about you? What do you have for us? I've been exceptionally lazy this summer, so my recommendations are all video-based now. I've, I feel like I, I haven't read anything constructive for my brain in, in quite a while outside of work. 
So I'm recommending a trio of Agatha Christie-based shows that are on Amazon Prime right now. So the first is Ordeal by Innocence. Second is The Pale Horse. Third is The ABC Murders. I like these because I studied British literature in college, so I, I always had an affinity. You know, I like the accents. I like the uh, the scenarios. I like the history component to these. And uh, and I had a lot of fun reading up on Agatha Christie and who she was. I mean, I'd, I've heard her name quite a bit, but didn't know much about her. So I spent some time reading up on uh, her background as well. So I like Rufus Sewell, who is uh, one of the primary actors in The Pale Horse. John Malkovich is, is the primary in uh, ABC Murders. He plays Hercule Poirot. It's fun. Uh, so if you have a few hours, each of these is broken into uh, uh, three one-hour long segments. Um, so a lot of fun if you're into murder mysteries or uh, all things uh, all things British. So those are my recommendations. Uh, they're on Amazon Prime right now. So with that, Sam, we want to thank you again for spending time with us today. We've we've really enjoyed it. You made insurance palatable more than palatable i enjoyed it right and i'm one and i'm one of those people who who always says if you say the word insurance i'll be asleep three seconds later so uh absolutely loved it you were right to say so. i will take palatable uh, I, I, we, can move, we can move towards love a future day a bit more time maybe <laughs> <laughs> right. It's okay. We're, Fred and I are in the same boat when we tell people we're lawyers. People people take three steps back right away anyway. So thank you again. It's been fun and hope that we can catch up with you again in the future. Yeah, that was lovely. Thank you. Good to meet you all. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.